Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, from a just-announced hydro rebate to next week's public safety legislation, we look at David Eby's road to the Premier's office. Plus, ticket woes. The U.S. Justice Department opens an antitrust investigation into the owner of Ticketmaster as criticism continues of its monopoly over the music industry. And the beautiful game, from an alcohol ban at stadiums to human rights concerns to the tournament itself, we get you primed for the World Cup. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Premier David Eby. Get used to saying that. David Eby was sworn in as the province's 37th Premier at the Musqueam Community Centre in Vancouver. The first swearing in, first ever swearing in of a Premier hosted by a First Nation in British Columbia. Mr. Eby was led into the Community Centre by First Nations drums. Now before the swearing in, he took, a part, took part in a Musqueam blanketing ceremony and was told to use it as a warm embrace from the community. When he feels frustrated or sad, Musqueam Chief Wayne Sparrow welcomed the crowd, gathered for the event and thanked Mr. Eby's wife uh, Dr. Kaylee Lynch and his two children acknowledging that their father would be taken away to work on behalf of the province. Here is our new premier being sworn in. I, David Robert Patrick Eby. I, David Robert Patrick Eby. Swear that I will serve his majesty. Swear that I will serve his majesty. Duly and faithfully. Duly and faithfully. And to the best of my ability. And to the best of my ability. Fulfill the responsibilities and trust granted to me fulfill the responsibilities and the trust granted to me as a member of the executive council of british columbia as a member of the executive council of british columbia i hereby declare you david robert patrick eby duly sworn and appointed as premier and president of the executive council of the government of british columbia congratulations premier eby there it is. David Eby becomes Premier David Eby, or 37th Premier. Of course, he uh, replaces his fellow New Democrat, John Horgan, who, of course, announced last June he was leaving office uh, due to health concerns. Now, Premier Eby uh, didn't waste a lot of time. He made some news today, not just with the swearing-in, uh, but with uh, some credits and uh, promises, to, promising to do more in regards to helping low-income residents as well. And that's where our good friend Richard Zussman comes in. He's Global BC's uh, legislative reporter uh, in Victoria. Richard, thank you for joining us. It's going to take a bit of time, Jazz, getting used to that premier EB thing instead of just Dave or David EB or Minister EB. So it was funny having to call him premier for the first time at that press conference. You just got to make sure your brain's working, you know, right to make sure you don't screw it up. Because exactly. he's earned that job, I guess, at this point. Now he's got to prove it to British Columbians. Exactly. Well, he didn't waste time. He announced a $100 cost of living credit for residents uh, in, in regards to their electricity bills. Uh, were you surprised by that at all? I was, and I'd spoken to a few, you know, members of the cabinet and MLAs and those in the event, and they were surprised that he came out with such a big announcement. We knew that this hydro piece was something that was being worked on. Uh, John Horgan, then Premier John Horgan, had mentioned that this was something they were working through with BC Hydro. We didn't know how much, we didn't know what it would look like or when it would come, but to deliver it in the speech when you're getting sworn in is showing to British Columbians that they are trying to tackle this issue of inflation and affordability. So just the nuts and bolts of it, for any a customer of BC Hydro or those who get their services through Fortis BC or a municipality through Hydro, you will get a $100 credit applied back to your bill in December. Uh, commercial payers could get up to $500 in a credit to support small businesses, restaurants, retailers, 
And then on top of that, there is a new DC affordability credit. That one's a little bit more complex. It's based on income. But if you're a family that makes anywhere up to $150,000 a year, you will be eligible for this credit uh, and that will come into place in the new year. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to clarify this. The um, the hydro rebate, that was mentioned earlier by then-Premier Horgan, was it not in the summertime? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And it was part of this package when uh, Horgan uh, rolled out. Again, it's going to be hard to not call him Premier anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, when Horgan rolled out his affordability measures, he mentioned the last piece of the pie was looking at hydro rates and we knew that something was coming but we finally got those details today but it wasn't just that jazz and we can focus on these in a sec but eb says on sunday his public safety mm-hmm. announcement's coming that's a story that we did last week we have uh, exclusive on the news hour around uh consolidating services with the province in the downtown east side leading to coordination we'll get many more details on that on sunday and then two big pieces of legislation coming monday on housing Like, he is hitting the ground on those big issues that matter, affordability, housing, public safety, and he's also mentioned that a health care promise is coming at some point in the next two weeks, largely built around um, internationally trained health care workers and ensuring, as he described, that they're not on the sidelines. So policy pieces, things for British Columbians, all within the first few weeks on the job on the things that matter the most, that's setting a tone here. Wow, that I mean, I, when you when, when you mentioned the housing um, issue, I thought maybe you know next spring and they'll think it through in regards to some of these changes. What will have significant impact not only in Vancouver but small town British Columbia, many older neighborhoods as well. If you allow, you know, two or, or sorry, three uh, residents on one lot, uh, all those yep. kind of things have a significant impact in regards just not just infrastructure and simple practical things like vehicles, how many vehicles you have on 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 your street. Those are quite significant. I don't know exactly. What what he's going to bring in, but I can no, see him thinking that big, right? And we, and we know what's in his housing plan, and but what ends up in the legislation is the question, because there'll be a lot of pieces of legislation that will need to be amended. So do we see the anti-flipping tax right away? Do we see this ability, as you described, to change zoning at residential properties? Will we see some of these tools pulled around and the changes to the strata plans? Will we see put into legislation these commitments around new housing? This is what we'll see in the details on Monday. We know the roadmap, but we will get those next steps. And again, he's been working through transition. The Liberals have been critical of him. Oh, why aren't you in the House? Why aren't you debating? Well, he's been working behind the scenes, and he is coming out swinging here with a number of big pieces that will get a lot of attention as he builds towards swearing in his new cabinet on December 7th. On the public safety side, I mean, to a certain degree, his hands are tied. Are they not? I mean, when I think of of short-term solutions, um, and I'm thinking about Vancouver here, where we're at, a hundred more police officers and mental health nurses in the short term would probably have a bigger impact, I would think, for people's perceptions and views of crime and public safety than anything the provincial government can do short term. Yeah, and the short term piece around the province, David Eby told me that he does not believe encampments work. And we will see what role the province plays here in ending the encampment on Hastings, ending the encampment in Crab Park. Yes, he has to work with the city and police and fire and the courts in some regards, but that coordination is now going to take place with the province. 
people, ever since he made that, you know, ever since he outlined those ideas and that will lead to this announcement on Sunday, there have been questions about, do you really want to take on the downtown east side as a political problem? Because it's something the politicians of all stripes have tried and failed to address. He's now trying to take that course. And that's only part of the public safety piece, mm-hmm. but it's so visible to so many jazz, and it will show if visibly, if visibly people see something different in that community, that will make a difference. I know. I, I don't disagree with you there. I mean, uh, you know, the, I, the, that Vancouver Police Department report was just absolutely silly. I don't think if you handed that paper in, no. that's what they cited in a first-year poli-sci class. The, the, the professor would fail you, in my opinion. But uh, it did, uh, you know, lead to broader conversation in regards to how are we spending our money and how effective is it? And he's got a point. I mean, there are there are silos there, and and if it's dealt with in a meaningful way in a post-COVID environment where people actually feel safer. I mean, I've had people on this show, women calling this show, women who been guests on the show they don't like going out in the evening in the downtown area or in and around downtown because of that, their views of safety and that, it, that's the core issue in regards to middle class voters and what they think and that needs to be fixed but it was stunning to me after we ran that story on the news hour about the province taking over coordination you heard the mayor of vancouver ken sim applaud it you heard the chief of the vancouver police adam palmer applaud it this has support all over the place and it's about addressing as you said that core issue of, you know what it's like, jazz and politics. It is largely about how people feel. Mm-hmm. Do they feel that government is doing enough to help them? And one of those feelings is, do I feel safe? And that is going to be the test for David Eby, is can he pull the strings on issues to make f- people feel that something's being done and feel safer in their community. In many ways, public safety uh, and and housing or affordability, if, if he is seen as a honest broker trying to do his best to do the right thing and people feel he's on their side, this sets him up well for the next election. But if, he, if they fail miserably, it's a whole different conversation come 2024. No, and exactly. And that's how he's going to be judged. And we ran a story last night on the news, our profile of David Eby introducing you to his family and what he's like in that end. But he also raised the really important point is we are going to have to find things to show British Columbians that things are better now. And there are so many ways of doing that. The price of gas, the price of a house, the way people get through traffic, the way they can find a childcare spot. Do they feel confident walking down the street in downtown? And those are just a few. Can they find a family doctor? These are the things that every voter is going to assess. Each and every one of those elements that impact our daily lives, that is how he's going to be judged. She knows that. People are not, you know the old saying, oppositions don't win governments. Governments lose them. And it's going to be up to the government to prove to people that they can deliver on the things that they need. Yeah. Do you think he, any any chance of an early election call? I don't. I, or if early would be in my thoughts, spring of 2024. It's now scheduled for fall of 2024. I don't think he goes any earlier because of all the factors you and I have discussed. There are so many issues he needs to manage. You look at the polls. People still don't know him. Mm-hmm. He needs to get people to know him, and that takes time. So my sense is we're probably going to see something in 2024. I could be wrong. I've been wrong on this before, but we will see. He needs the time to build up that credibility, and, and he has to watch external forces he has no control over, the global economy, settling out of the pandemic, finding family doctors, uh, dealing with the overall issue of recession and the economy and inflation. 
all housing pressures. Those are all things he needs to let stabilize before asking people to vote for. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting couple of years, that's for sure. Richard, thank you. I'm guessing I'll be on the show again before the next election, so I look forward to the next <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, inflation and supply chain disruptions have marred Canada's economy in many ways this year, with costs for basic goods uh, continuing to remain high. A new survey from Ernst & Young says Canadians are not looking to break the bank this Christmas. Joining me now is Elliot Morris, a partner at EY Canada, where he focuses on the consumer and retail sector. Elliot, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I found this uh, study to be quite interesting. Uh, in regards to the overall mood of people based on this survey, uh, did it surprise you in regards to how cautious Canadians are? You know, it, it, it does surprise me a little bit. Um, but first, let me start by saying that the survey has about 18,000 people in it around the world. Uh, and compared to the balance of the world, Canadians are actually pretty optimistic about the future, in particular about being able to get back to normal. Uh, and so about three quarters of people are looking forward to that. And just over half of the people are feeling eager to catch up on experiences that they missed out on due to the disruption of the pandemic. Having said that, to your point, you're, you are right that a huge percentage of Canadians uh, are starting to cut back uh, in the face of increasing inflation and in the face of increasing uncertainty uh, about the future. Uh, and in particular, those Canadians are looking to, uh, to spend really only on the essentials. Uh, and many Canadians are having trouble even paying for those essentials like food and housing. Um, in regards to that, when you say that you know we're doing a lot better than other countries, I, when you look at the headlines, uh, I, I don't disagree with you compared to some of the things that we're seeing out of uh, out of Europe. Um, are, are, cons- are, are you getting any sense that Canadians are hopeful moving into the new year, or do they think this is going to be a, a challenge for a while when you look at the issues of inflation uh, and, and many other concerns moving forward? Well, I'd say the Canadians are cautiously optimistic. And I, the way that we think about it is this, which is when you look at other countries like the U.S. and the U.K. in particular, uh, you see that things can be much worse. And so when you look at consumer sentiment there, uh, they are much less optimistic about the future. Whereas in Canada, uh, I think that we are less optimistic than we were 18 months ago, of course. Uh, But when you compare where we are versus others, I think folks believe that uh, there is a path, there's a high confidence path uh, to better days ahead in the new year. And I hope and I believe that that is what, uh, uh, what we're going to see. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Christmas. It's around the corner here. How are people feeling about Christmas and spending? Well, about 40% of Canadians say that they're going to spend less this holiday season than last year, in particular due to increasing prices. Uh, And when they say they're going to spend less, uh, they really focus on a couple of things. And so gifts for friends, family, and relatives, uh, alcohol, and celebratory meals are all places where Canadians think they're going to spend less this year versus last year. Um, good news for kids is that the last place that people are willing to cut uh, is gifts for children. And so hopefully it'll be a happy Christmas for all. Hmm. And, uh, you know, part of Christmas is obviously travel. And are people still wanting to travel or are they also cutting back there or planning to? Well, you know, over half of Canadians are planning to travel over the holiday season to be with friends or family. And that's a big increase from from the previous few years. If you cast your mind back to this time last year or two years ago, Uh, we would have been in peak pandemic. And so those were times where people were showing a lot of caution around traveling. 
The difference this year uh, is that there's a, a lot of the travel that's happening is going to be closer to home. Um, and so when people think about traveling and increasing costs in particular, um, they show a lot of caution around uh, air travel in particular, um, not because of concerns over health uh, or the pandemic, um, but over concerns around cost. And so I'd expect there to be uh, shorter distance travel this year, but people still feeling like they have lots of confidence to get together with family and friends in a way that perhaps that they haven't over the past two years. Well, I find it quite interesting. In, in one portion of your study said over a quarter of Canadians will purchase less food and alcohol for celebratory meals to avoid waste. So, And 44% plan to use less festive lighting and decorations. It does speak to a certain conservatism and prudence, I think, on the when, it, when, you, when you think about Canadians. I mean, they really are watching all their expenses along the way. Well, I like to think of it as people being practical. Um, and so, of course, it's prudent. Of course, it's cautious. Um, but to me, I think that there's a, uh, there's a real combination of being able to save costs uh, and also being able to reduce our impact overall. Um, and so as people think about ways to save costs, certainly I think that they're prioritizing ways that we can reduce impact uh, on the environment in particular, both in terms of the way that we consume energy and also the way in terms uh, in the way that we purchase uh, goods around holiday season. We are obviously not completely out of COVID. There are still uh, challenges uh, when you look at uh, the respiratory season and what we're dealing with uh, here in British Columbia and particularly provinces uh, like Ontario. How are these numbers compared to what you would have seen, let's say, five years ago or even three years ago? And so five years ago or three years ago, economic conditions would have been meaningfully different and therefore we would have expected and we would have seen and did see uh, people being, I think, more free spending. Um, but I think that that has to do with more of the core economic indicators uh, than it does around some of the health indicators that we're seeing. What I think we have learned, though, uh, over the course uh, of the last three years uh, is how quickly things can change, uh, both in terms of obviously the economy, um, where today, if we look at inflation, uh, high levels of inflation, uh, plus increasing interest rates, but has not largely touched the job market yet. Um, if that happens, I think we're going to see a meaningful change in the way that people are spending. And then secondly, uh, if we move into uh, a season where there's meaningful respiratory challenges in terms of health and, a, and, a, and, a, and an increase in pandemic, uh, in the pandemic, then I expect that we would see big changes uh, in terms of consumer sentiment. And I think that if I, if I look at our clients and, and the people that we work with, um, certainly a concern of theirs, though something that they think they're prepared for, are those U-turns. Uh, in consumer sentiment, and they think that they're going to be in a good position based on the based on the exercises of the past two and a half or three years uh, to be able to address some of those potential sharp turns. Elliot, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating study, and uh, it's great to to sort of get a sense of where Canadians are uh, this holiday season. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. Well, the U.S. Justice Department has opened an antitrust investigation into the owner of Ticketmaster, uh, whose sale of Taylor Swift's uh, concert tickets uh, descended into chaos this week. The investigation is focused on whether Live Nation Entertainment has abused its power over the multi-billion dollar live music industry. Now, that power has been in the spotlight after Ticketmaster's systems crashed while Ms. Swift's fans were trying to buy tickets in a pre-sale for her tour, but the investigation predates that botched sale, according uh, to critics. Joining me now 
to talk about uh, Ticketmaster and uh, the hold it does have on the music industry is Eric Alper. He's a publicist and music commentator at thatericalper.com. Hello, Eric. Hello. You caught me at a really good time. I'm at the bank trying to refinance my house so I can afford Taylor Swift tickets when she announced the Canadian tour. <laughs> I know. Well, one of our producers here, uh, Talia, who is, truly is a Swifty and grew up listening to Taylor Swift, she and five other friends were calling at the same time, and one of them were able to get that code. Uh, so they're actually going to head down to Seattle to uh, to to watch uh, Ms. Uh, Swift. But uh, it takes that kind of uh, that kind of ingenious thinking and, that- and, and work together to get something, get those tickets. And that is exactly the situation that we're in, because people tend to forget that when an artist like Taylor Swift announces a tour, there's not just a million people in that city that are trying to get, you know, 50,000 tickets. It's people that are willing to go across state lines or country lines and, and go and travel to go see those shows as well. And, you know, when you have... And, and excess of, of demand, but, you know, not a lot of supply. Look, we're seeing it in so many other places now, too. You know, it's $10 for a bag of lettuce. Or if you've tried to book a flight on an airline, you are definitely paying three times as much as when you did maybe four months ago. So this dynamic pricing that I think people are complaining about, they don't realize that this is no different, really. But um, it's an interesting turn of events. With, with the AG announcing that they're looking at the Ticketmaster because it's really, really hard to break up a, a monopoly. There's not too many times in U.S. history that that's ever happened before. Yeah, is, and to my understanding, there was a merger between Live Nation and Ticketmaster mm-hmm. that the Justice Department approved in 2010. It's, I mean, the company is a giant, to my, to my understanding, what I've been seeing here. Yeah. They, it's, it's put on 40,000 events, that's Live Nation, and sold nearly half a billion tickets through Ticketmaster. Why does the music industry not like Live Nation? Like, what are the specifics in your mind that really irritate the music industry? Oh, zilch. They love Live Nation, and they love Ticketmaster. Live Nation works for them because, you know, without getting too much in the weeds of it, they actually guarantee um, payment for these shows before tickets go on sale. The reason why they love Ticketmaster is because Ticketmaster is nothing more really than a front for all of the anger issues that the fans have. So it's very easy to get mad at a nameless, faceless corporation rather than blame Taylor Swift or, um, you know, uh, the weekend for high ticket prices. When it's all the artists doing, they have 100% of the say in how many tickets go on sale, what the prices are going to be. You have to. So the reason why I think it's a little bit troublesome was because Live Nation owns so many of the venues across North America and around the world. So if you want to play a place that holds, you know, 10,000 seats or more, it's a Live Nation venue and you're going to have to use Ticketmaster. But it's a it's a marriage made in heaven because the artists certainly aren't making nearly what they were making 10 years ago when album sales were around. So they're relying on the road um, and the live music industry. And it's exactly what Live Nation and Ticketmaster offers them. So that's where some of the a lot of the anger is just misplaced is I get it. People are frustrated with, you know, not knowing what the prices are or service fees, but the artists are fully aware of what's going on. Uh, how do you fix this in your mind that so that these types of concerts 
are more attuned to the needs of the fan than just the artist. And don't get me wrong, I understand the artists create the music, they perform, it's very important what they do in regards to content creation and, and, and the art that they produce. But there seems to be a general frustration with fans, not just based on cost, but also availability. What would you like to see change to make it much more um, fan-centric? I think there's two really quick things that they can do, and we've seen them both in action work. Garth Brooks, when he announced his Canadian tour, he did something like 10 or 12 shows in the same city, um, and he kept the prices at one price for every ticket. So therefore, the demand, um, the, the amount of tickets available reached the demand for it. And so you had no reason to worry about paying $400 tickets because every ticket was $50, and there was no way around that. He actually forced that upon to Live Nation and Ticketmaster when he did those shows. Um, the other thing that the artists could do is just simply price the tickets for what they're worth. I think that, for in general, music fans have been treated pretty well but i think maybe it's time to say look if somebody's willing to pay five thousand dollars for a front row ticket then give it to them at five thousand dollars you have to start pricing things to the demand and to what people are willing to pay and that's how you knock out the scalpers and 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 the third party sites if the only reason why those sites exist is because people are still willing to pay 10 times, 15 times that ticket price. So just price them accordingly and you'll knock them out. The government will never, ever step into something like this. There's already laws on the books for scalpers. You're not allowed to sell a ticket for a higher price than what it's paid for. But the government and the police simply just don't care about the issue except for when they want to score some political points. Hmm. Uh, in regards to you meant the issue um, you talked about the issue of album sales and now you have to compensate uh, for that mm. loss of revenue through uh, uh, Ticketmaster through your ticket pricing uh, with our streaming services Spotify Apple and many others will they ever get to the point where they that money that artists make now can actually be similar to what they were making when they were selling those albums or is, or is that just that era is done that's just already done, you know, because you never hear about the superstar artists, the 1% of the artists complaining about their checks. You don't hear about a Taylor Swift or a Drake or The Weeknd complaining because like every era of the music industry, um, the top 1% is going to make 80% of the money anyway. But when you're in that middle ground, that's when it starts to get really wonky. Every million streams on Spotify gives $4,000 to the rights holders. And that's divided up by the record label and management and lawyers and the band and trickling down to to the artists. So I don't think we're ever going to come back to a moment where, where um, you know, the artists were making that kind of money. But going back to Taylor Swift, there's 20 different versions of the physical seat of the physical album of her latest album, Midnight, for fans to buy. And you can better believe that a lot of them bought two copies, three, four different versions of it with different artwork and autographs, um, postcards that were in it. Some had different songs on the album. You know, Target had an exclusive physical album that um, had a couple of extra songs on there, for instance. That's what you're going to see, is you're going to see um, more direct-to-fan sales of the vinyl records, of the CDs, and the artists are just going to have to start to do that more. Hmm. Uh, in regards to just weeding out bots and, and, and some of these professional scalpers, does Ticketmaster do a decent job, or do you think they just need to do more work, uh, work uh, in specifically in dealing with the bots and, and the professional scalpers? 
Yeah, it, it's tough to say. You know, they're the best that we have right now. I mean, you said it at the top. I mean, they do they do millions of shows around the world selling a half a billion tickets. It's a really good system because I don't want to go back to lining up for three days, you know, in the cold at my local record store trying to get tickets through Ticketmaster like I was doing as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the best system that we have. And sometimes, you know, uh, the, the it, it, it's so... It, it's really hard for technology to land in front of the bad actors and the bad people that are always going to be out there. They're always going to be one step ahead. But unfortunately, you know, there's always going to be for every person that says, I'm not going to spend a thousand dollars on a ticket. That's okay. Don't go. There's going to be 500 people who will. Is there anything wrong with asking people to stand outside for those tickets? I'm like you. I don't want to be doing that either. In fact, (laughs) as I was coming into work today across the street, we have a brand new uh, uh, Apple store that just opened. So people were lined up. It was day one. And these are all huge Apple fans are lined up. Not something I would do. And I am an Apple guy, but not something I would do. But what's wrong with asking people? If you really care about the artist, you really want to get the right tickets or the best tickets, what's wrong with asking people to wait? What what's amazing about that idea is that I would be okay if only the tickets that were selling in that market went to the people in that market. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if you were lining up in certain places in Vancouver, only people in Vancouver could get those tickets. And that would probably eliminate a lot of the, the issues. Therefore, if you were in Edmonton and you wanted to go, too bad. If she's not announcing a show in Edmonton, you're, you can't go. So that would be one way of thinking. I think everything is on the table when you're Ticketmaster and Live Nation because they obviously want to to make that experience that much better um but you know in vancouver dude it's so easy for you to say that because you have good weather (laughs) if you're in buffalo or toronto you might have a different experience with that it was like i I, it's like i I don't want to go see a show between the months of october and june yeah, that is true. We've had some good weather this week as well, but the rain is coming, my friend. I promise you that. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. Thanks for having me. Chinese leader Xi Jinping was captured by Canadian broadcasters in a rare candid moment uh, this week where he was filmed chiding his Canadian counterpart, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, over what he described as leaked discussion. Now, some critics say they found the language used by Xi uh, during his interaction with Trudeau at the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, to be quite dismissive and threatening, indicating that any illusions the government has the uh, has the China respecting Canada and, uh, and views Canada as an influential nation in the world has long disappeared. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this interaction between the Chinese leader and Justin Trudeau is Jeremy Nuttall, who's a Vancouver-based investigative journalist for the Toronto Star. He's also lived and covered issues in China as well. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So your thoughts on this. Apparently, uh, Xi Jinping felt that uh, there were private conversations between uh, himself and and Prime Minister Trudeau, and they should not have been uh, perhaps discussed in in newspapers in Canada. They viewed as those discussions were leaked. Um, What do you think of this sort of, uh, this interaction that occurred? Usually, these things are well-managed, and uh, they don't allow this kind of stuff to come out in the public, but in this case, it it did. What, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the first things to remember is what what part of the discussions were was about uh, uh, China's uh, interference in Canadian democracy. And uh, for Xi Jinping to uh, have an outburst at at 
Justin Trudeau for mentioning that he brought it up. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's inappropriate of Xi Jinping. Who's he to say uh, that Trudeau can't tell Canadians that he's uh, brought up uh, election interference uh, in Canada with China's leader? Um, you know, particularly considering that it's uh, Xi Jinping's uh, United Front Work Department that's uh, allegedly behind all this stuff. Uh, so I thought that was the first interesting thing. Yeah, and, and, and in many ways, I mean, the relationship hasn't been very good ever since uh, the two Michaels um, were, were uh, basically held in, in China. And, of course, the relationship regarding Meng Jiawei and Huawei. Um, but do you think this is something that's going to last? Is, is this something that's sort of the, the new normal now based on what has already come out in the last few weeks uh, with, uh, you know, Chinese firms being asked to disinvest from lithium mines in Canada. You brought up the issue of uh, CSIS's comments in regards to uh, Chinese being involved, the Chinese government being involved uh, in our last federal election. Is this just the new normal now? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily certain that this is the way the Liberal Party wants it because they've been uh, quite happy to try to appease China for a very long time um, because a lot of uh, their sort of circle has uh, investments there and they think that, you know, this is all very good for the Canadian economy, etc. Um, but I think that, that the public opinion is clear and it's something that can't necessarily be ignored by the government anymore. Uh, and not just public opinion, but also real-world effects on Canada when you start having them, uh, uh, the Chinese government, interfering in Canadian democracy. Uh, that's at a point where you can't ignore that, um, or at least you can't ignore it and expect not to get massive amounts of uh, public blowback once the, uh, you know, once the story gets out. So I think that Canada is going to have to start acting more like uh, some of its allies, like Australia and the United States has, and China's not going to react well to that. So it's probably just going to be more and more of this. Uh, in regards to the specific uh, complaints that have been made or allegations in regards to uh, China being involved uh, in covertly funding 11 candidates in the 2019 federal election, um, do you think we'll be learning more in regards to who those candidates were, what kind of money um, you know, potentially could have been used or was used in, in all of this? I mean, or is this one of those things that they, you know, we get sort of broad idea of what might be happening, but nobody wants to get into the specifics and certainly nobody gets charged or booted out? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that the Canadian people deserve an explanation on this. Um, even, if, even if there are no charges, just saying that they investigated it and walking away, uh, I don't think that's enough. I think that when when it comes out that this kind of thing uh, could have been happening or is alleged to have happened, that Canadian people are owed an explanation. And I, I would certainly hope that the uh, government and uh, the RCMP, CSIS, etc., feel the same way and, uh, and, and release more information. Um, you know, we now know the name of one person that's a part of the investigation, uh, thanks to, to Sam Cooper over at Global. And we'll see if uh, there's more of, more of that information coming out. But it shouldn't just be coming from media, though. I mean, it really should be uh, something that we're hearing about from officials. Yeah, and that's I guess that's a cultural difference. I'll tell you, if this was the U.S., it would have gotten a lot more attention. And certainly media's mm-hmm. been doing their digging. But, it, you know, ultimately it has to come from an agency that has... Um, you know, the full power, uh, the state power behind it to, to do the investigation, to, to, to lay charges if required, and openly talk about some of this and some of the allegations um, that, that are there. Um, you know, some people have said, look, this is how 
things work in the real world. Well, we Canadians shouldn't be naive that all countries in some way A, spy, and B, try to uh, influence um, internal times domestic conversations in d- democracies, and we shouldn't be surprised with what China is doing. Is this a question of where we just try to stop it, or is it a question of trying to manage it? Well, I think it's quite, I think we just, it's something we should try to stop. I mean, you know, the, uh, the idea, of, and I've heard that argument too from people, that, oh, all countries do it. Da, da, da. Well, all countries don't do it to the extent that China does it. No other country hosts uh, low-level politicians every year at a banquet in an attempt to build relationships and influence power. You know, no other country has uh, secret uh, police stations operating in Canada. Uh, you know, it's, it, or, or a huge network of, you know, business or community groups that are, are here to do a foreign government's bidding. Um, it's, it's only China that has this level of, of influence operation going. And uh, I, I think, like, you know, the way it works with Xi Jinping, as you know, is if you look the other way, you give, you give him an inch and he takes a mile. And I just think that, you know, the only way that Canada can uh, put a stop to this is to actually try to stop it. Do you think we're supposed to be coming out with a, an Indo-Pacific strategy it's supposed to be released in December? Uh, many say this will, this, this will be the document that at least provides guidance on, on where the government should be headed, our, our worldview, particularly when it comes to trade with Asia, but specifically our dealings with China, because China looms large. Do you think we're going to have a much tougher uh, stance with China moving forward, uh, forward or is it still going to be more, more muddled, uh, a more muddled yeah. response? Uh, history, I think history shows uh, that it's often just a wet blanket um, uh-huh. when this kind of stuff comes out. Um, with the new, I mean, which which could be part of the reason that the, the government right now is trying to look so tough on China is maybe they know that it's going to be an underwhelming uh, document once it is out. We'll see. But, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm optimistic that there will be anything in here uh, of real consequence at this point. Maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a very good point. I mean, we've spent, what, three decades now trying to encourage our, our, our political leaders and business leaders of, you know, how many trade missions they've uh, led in Asia, particularly China, thinking that if we keep trading with them, we, we can change China. And I, my, my argument is I think China's changed us, that we've accepted so much of it. It really is now the time to do a complete 180-degree turn in our thinking and mindset with China. And we can still trade with them. But certainly we have to be much more forceful uh, in regards to articulating our values and pushing back, especially if there's meddling in our elections, uh, research uh, that our universities do, all of those things. I think, that, I think the public is ready for it now. Oh, absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's only a, a, winning, a winning strategy from a political standpoint as well. So you have to wonder when, when at some point uh, Canadian uh, politicians are going to understand that. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Hopefully we get something bold in December. Jeremy, thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you, Jeff. I don't know about your family, but my family loves movies. It's a, just a great communal experience, whether at home, but especially the movie theater. We love going to the movies, uh, the sound, the popcorn. It's just the overall trip. It's it's an event, and uh, I know uh, we have to soon get to uh, the theaters uh, probably this weekend or next weekend to watch uh, Black Panther, of course, we haven't seen yet. But, you know, go movie movie going is just a, a wonderful experience. Starting me now to talk a little bit about movie going, but more importantly, Cineplex's Community Days is Dominic Lowe, who is a general manager at Cineplex. Hello, Dominic. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for joining us. Tell me a little bit about uh, Cineplex Community Days, which, uh, to my understanding, are are occurring tomorrow morning. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's our 10th annual uh, Community Day, and uh, we're excited to welcome Canadian movies lovers 
and families back to our feeders uh, for a morning of family-friendly films, as well as discounted concession items. So uh, what time can somebody show up at, at uh, your theaters uh, uh, in the morning? Is it like 8 a.m., 9 a.m.? What time? Yeah, it will be uh, starting at 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will run from 9 to 11 with uh, the movie starting at 9.30. Okay, and the charge for the uh, movie itself is free. So anybody who wants to bring their kids, want to go watch the movie, for, uh, it, it's free. That's correct. Okay, and and uh, I'm sure there'll be a bit of a rush because who doesn't like free? I uh, just want to confirm, uh, do you get a ticket while you're there or is it first come, first serve? Yeah, it's going to be first come, first serve. And uh, when you come by, just let us know which movie you're interested in and we'll hand over a ticket for you. All right. And and which movies will you be playing uh, that are free uh, for for uh, for uh, customers? Yeah, so we're playing uh, Paws of Free, The Legends of Hank, um, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, The Lost City, and the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run. So those three will be playing at 9 a.m. tomorrow. And uh, so the, the movies themselves are free. And what about the concessions? Concession items going to be two fifty. Select items and uh, of popcorn, soft drink, and candy, and a dollar from each um, concession order will be donated to the national nonprofit of uh, BGC Canada. So that's the Boys and Girls Club of Canada. That's correct. And is and this is you've been doing this uh, every year. It's been a while since you've been doing these community days, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, but the COVID kind of stopped that a little bit, but uh, we're happy to bring this back this year. Yeah. How do you find it just uh, at Cineplex? Uh, you know, the, the movie industry obviously was changed like many businesses just because of COVID, as you said. Uh, are people starting to uh, uh, come back now and, and enjoy the movie experience? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we are definitely seeing people coming back. Um, we just opened uh, Black Panther uh, this last week, and uh, we are seeing a great number of people coming back and enjoying the movie once again. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that is that's uh, great to see. I'm out of, just out of curiosity, I know uh, Black Panther is not part of uh, this uh, community day, Cineplex Community Day. Just overall, what have you been hearing about the, 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 the movie itself in regards to uh, people wanting to come in and watch it? Has it been pretty busy? Yeah, it's been pretty busy for us. Um, I've been hearing nothing but good things about the movie. Um, and I've heard from people that um, it ties in greatly. So, yeah. It's been going well. Uh, and are these, this event, the community event, that's at all Cineplex, Cineplex uh, theaters? Uh, select uh, locations. So here in the lower mainland, in Vancouver, it's downtown. You have it, you, it is uh, available downtown? That's correct. Okay. And so and if people wanted to learn more in regards to communities in their theaters, they just go to your website? Yeah, come to cineplex.com and uh, slash community and they'll be able to see a list of locations um, having community day and showtimes on there. That's wonderful. Dominic, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you so much. This week, we look at hockey's ugliest mascots, and is November too soon to celebrate Christmas? Joining us today is a uh, regular rap panel. Joining me is Leah Halive, TV reporter and radio host. Hello, Leah. Hello, Jazz. Hello, and Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Welcome, Sarah. What's happening, hot stuff? (laughs) 
I'll tell you what's happening. Harvey the Hound is happening. It turns out NHL fans are not fans of the Calgary Flames mascot, ranking him dead last in a poll of favorite team mascots across the league. It was a survey conducted by uh, New York.bet, which is an online sports betting site, and they polled Canadians and American fans, uh, all things uh, related to mascots, and they said that the Saddledome mainstay was the least popular character in the league. It came out number 32 of 32 teams. Finn of the Vancouver Canucks ranked 21st. So, you know, we, we, we weren't last. We did okay. Uh, I think the folks, uh, the mascots they liked, by the way, was uh, the Detroit, Pist- uh, Detroit Pistons. That's a basketball team. Detroit Red Wings. Uh, 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 I guess it's Al the Octopus. Uh, was one of their favorites. Uh, so there you go. I know, an act octopus. There you go. So uh, I want to ask, uh, Leah, let me start with you first of all. What makes a good mascot in your mind? Well, definitely not the Philadelphia Flyers gritty. Have you seen that thing? That thing is scary as heck. Like, <laughs> adults are scared of that thing, I'm telling you. I think if you're going to go with a mascot, it needs to be fluffy and cute. It has to have a good face. Like, I think it needs to have a good face for kids. Definitely not gritty. Harvey, I think, was actually not bad. And Finn is cool, too. I've worked with Finn, actually, personally, myself. But I think he's a cool <laughs> mascot. But I think that it has to be something cute, doesn't it? Yes. It anything scary, right? Exactly. How about you, How about you, Sarah? I mean, do they annoy you, uh, mascots? Or, they, or do, you, do you think that there's a use for them? I'm bringing this all local because people may or may not know. But back in the 90s, I used to drive the Rock 101 Cruiser. Oh. And when you drive nice. the Cruiser... You go to events, etc. And and Rock 101 did not have a mascot, but our arch enemy at the time was 99.3 The Fox. Oh. And I always... (laughs) Now, this is nothing against the radio station or any of the employees, but I have to say that the Sea Fox Fox in person was a little bit problematic because I felt... (laughs) Seriously, I, I think he was a little touchy, time, wasn't he? It was, it was, the, the, aside from the person <laughs> who might be in it, that suit was maybe dry cleaned once in the early 70s. <laughs> oh. I mean, it like dogs lifted their legs on it, ice cream oh. got spilled on it. It kind of looked, it didn't look like a, a fluffy, cute fox. It looked more like a fox that might have rabies or like at the very least a wet dog. <laughs> and and it was the 90s, so the, the fox smelt like pot a lot of the time. <laughs> and, and the, you know, the fox would be handing out whatever and go up to little children and scare the bejesus out of them. <laughs> so I'm bringing it on a local level. Literally, you've got to be fluffy and cute. It's why little kids yeah. are frightened of clowns and why Santa Claus, for a lot of kids, is frightening as well. But the sea fox fox and the people of sea fox, you know I love you. But that thing needed to be laundered and it needed to be fluffier. I and saw it. Not, and it could not smell like it had just spent the night at one they of the local haven't nightclubs. Done it yet. Yeah. I, I actually saw it down the hall earlier this week. <laughs> No, I yeah, it's it still there. Like I will, I will take a picture and send it to you. I promise you, I did see it. Now, oh my god! Here, here, here's my question: If you had to design uh, um, uh, a mascot that is reflective of Vancouver today and all our foibles as a culture, as people, what what what, what would you what would you want to? Uh, so, what, if you had to design it today, what would that mascot be? Who would it be? Who Who are you asking? I'm asking you, Leah. <laughs> okay, so I thought long and hard. I have two. Okay, so the first one could be rain, just a raindrop, because we're Raincooper, right? We get lots of rain. <laughs> yeah. Or my favorite, we could go with it, a mascot just wearing, uh, wearing saying, go home, since we are the no fun city. Yeah. Just go home on the yep. front, right? And that's it. 
That's our mascot. That could work. How about you, Sarah? Right? Well, I mean, you know, it's gone now, but I thought we could have Barney the Barge. You know, oh, that would be good. Yeah. Barney the Barge, you know, just basically <laughs> plopping down wherever the hell he wants to and calling it a day. <laughs> <laughs> Until the good citizens of Vancouver took it apart and sent the bill to somebody who's not going to pay it because we all know that's going to happen. <laughs> and after that, I mean, yeah, like a snow cap, rain, um, like, a, like, oh, a, a tiny little Lego house with a price tag saying $1 million on it. For the overpriced, this yeah. is coming from a realtor. This is coming from a realtor. I know the joke too. Something along those lines. I'd probably have I like a, Barney the Barge, though. Barney the Barge. If the barge was still here, it would be Barney the Barge. That would be good. I'd probably have like a millennial wearing Lululemon, and I just call him <laughs> Pete the Protester, and he'd be yes. a professional protester. You know, you could take him out to yes. events, or you know, if you'd really need the attention, just stand at the Landsgate Bridge blocking traffic exactly. in the morning. The cause, the cause is not important. It's just the fact that you're there. Exactly. Exactly. So That's what we're known Pete for. the Protester wearing expensive Lululemon and <laughs> not trying how. I like yeah yeah and he just he, he he doesn't know how the economy works it doesn't matter he just he's you yell go, at him for yeah. my you and honestly yeah. <laughs> well, for my years as a traffic reporter I could never understand why people closed down bridge traffic because oh, I knew they got people attention it. but the thing is it's not the right kind of attention people now no. hate you and want to have nothing to do with your cause they're not it's reading your sign they're yelling at you well we're, we're <laughs> exactly. at that we're at that point now where they get out of their cars and they move the protesters which we saw in Lionsgate yeah. Bridge so it's yeah. it's yeah. A, it's a different which has all kinds of legal uh, you know issues surrounding ramifications them, right? uh, exactly yeah. all right well coming up next <laughs> is november too soon to celebrate christmas that's next on the wrap we are talking to our rap panel, Leah Halive and Sarah Daniels. Uh, during the break, Phil Figueredo, our producer, actually had an extra extra thing that uh, Pete, the protester, could do. He actually carried glue with him, and he can glue himself to surfaces, too, if required. So thanks for that uh, bit of advice there, uh, Pete. Well, last week, I think it was a Saturday, I was going through Instagram, and uh, the actress Millie Bobby Brown uh, had posted a video where she was uh, decorating the tr- her Christmas tree. I mean, like fully decorated. Christmas was like literally the next day or something. It looked really nice. She had the Mariah Carey song playing, all of it. Uh, and then I came into the office Monday saying, when is it too early? Now, I'm probably going to be putting up lights this weekend, uh, getting ready for Christmas. Then we asked the question, when is too early. Well, as we were talking about the issue uh, here in our office, uh, the producer of this show, Stephen Chang, uh, who um, grew up in the Philippines, uh, took it to another level when he told me what early means when it comes to Christmas preparation. Take a listen to Steve. Jazz, where I'm from, as a Filipino man myself, Mm -hmm. we celebrate Christmas starting in the Burr months. And by the Burr months, I mean any month that ends in the last three letters b-e-r so we go as early as september the christmas decorations go up the trees go up as early as september that is how i grew up in the philippines that is what i witnessed and you know what maybe still to this day (laughs) so leah let me ask you first uh september is our good friend steven says is when uh, his family would put up decorations i was shocked that millie bobby brown like i said it was it was a beautiful christmas scene a beautiful tree but it was mid november when is too early or maybe the better question is when do you start well, uh, celebrating christmas well, leah and i, I are on the guys- same page Leah yeah, and I are on I, the same page. There we go. So you guys saw my, I thought you guys saw my Twitter post. I put mine up this week too. So my outside lights are already up. 
<laughs> and uh, my Good Christmas tree is going up this Sunday, but it has to be after Remembrance Day. To me, yes. after Remembrance Day, then I'm all good. You're good. Before Remembrance Day, I don't know, you know, for me personally, to each his own. But for me, it has to be after Remembrance Day. And then it's guns ablazing. They're going up. Yeah, it's <laughs> no going up. And you're the same, Sarah? I had everything ready to go starting November the 12th. And I fully agree See? with you on this yep. one. I whoop, before whoop. remembrance to me <laughs> before remembrance day to me is completely disrespectful. It upsets me because I, I I realize that you know I mean the last major war that we fought in I mean there was the Korean War etc. But really was World War II and and there are few if not any veterans left and there's not as many people on the corners with poppies anymore. I had to really search mm-hmm. to get one this year and I won I I constantly wonder as somebody who loves history. If, if that is being forgotten for all the wrong reasons, because we you know take our freedoms for granted. And so it does mm-hmm. upset me if I'm like, I mean, literally, it was bad enough that I went into Winners and Home Sense like in early October to find out, you know, uh, Halloween stuff. And it was all gone for Christmas stuff. It really bothers me that, that I, I really feel that there's a, a lack of respect for Remembrance Day. I know that that's not the conversation we meant to have. Yeah. But, um- to yeah. me, it's, it, it, you really need to be respectful of the people that gave their lives for our freedom. No, I, yeah. Yeah, I, would just, I would totally agree with both of you on the issue of Remembrance Day. And having, um, uh, you know, gone to Afghanistan and, yeah. uh, and, and actually, uh, you, know, done, you know, gone out on patrols with Canadian troops. Uh, in one case, um, we lost uh, somebody who uh, I was on a patrol with. Uh, literally, uh, I finished a patrol, oh. went back to Canada, and literally a week later, that very individual died while they were still doing what they do it's best, just, which is protecting. Yeah. So you're absolutely right yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, in regards to this year, though, Leah, let me ask you, do you think people and, and maybe it is because of COVID that we're actually decorating earlier, wanting to get out and, and just sort of have that, uh, you know, yeah. that tradition, family, all of that. Maybe COVID's probably brought it on as well. 100%. I think people uh, want to sit, like do something exciting, have fun with their family, and celebrate it because they really couldn't for the last few years. Like I didn't see my family for the last few years on Christmas Day. So this year we will, which will be the first year. So it would be nice. And I think that's what everybody's excited about. But the question you need to ask, Jazz, is when do we take them down on the end of January, <laughs> February? <laughs> If I see icicle lights in July, I'm I'm gonna lose it. Now why do people do that? What is with that? First of all, icicle lights. I'm sorry. Send your emails to me. I'm fine with it. Icicle lights are ugly and they must be stopped. That's yeah. just Aww. that's the way it is. They are horrifying. But but yeah, there there is a point. But I the thing, I think the reason too is that I I mean I for me that like Christmas is really about giving and and Christmas is really about small kids. I don't care if I get anything for Christmas, but I love. The tree and, the, you know, the, and, yeah. and all the decorations and just, you know, the idea of giving. I know that I sound like an old grump half the time, and I am, but <laughs> the whole point of Christmas what? is really for kids who I don't want around the rest of the time, but I'm all fine with on Christmas. Yeah, I, 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 I love looking at lights, going and driving around and yeah, looking yes. at lights. That yeah, yeah. I absolutely love. It's, it yeah. is, uh, you know, for my family, certainly the best time of the year, uh, for sure. I, I, I do want to ask you, we've got about a minute left, uh, Sarah. It, it does, we're off on a bit of a tangent, but we did a segment yesterday on Christmas tree <laughs> shortages in this province. We've gone from about 500 farms in BC that actually, you know, grow these trees down to about 400 as some of these uh, individuals are just older now and yeah. they're sold off their properties. I think partially, it, it, in the last couple of years, it's just been... In 
and the, yeah. the weather as well. And it takes about, you know, six, seven years to, to get a tree to a point where they can actually sell it. Um, do you still do the live trees, Sarah, or do you I, do the pre-lit trees that you can find I at have, Indian Time? I have, a, I have a pre-lit tree, but i got to say, this is the other thing about supply chains. I was in Canadian Tire just recently. I bought my tree when I moved back from Toronto like four years ago. And I think pre-lit, it was, you know, at Walmart or something, it was $199, which wasn't bad. Yeah. Now I'm seeing, like, the really crappy ones for, like, $399, $450. Oh, wow. Because mm. a lot of them do come from overseas. There's a whole bunch of supply chain issues. They're super pricey, so I'm wondering whether people will revert back to that natural tree. Yeah, yeah. So maybe. I always feel badly when I have to when I had when we had the natural tree. It's like now it's Christmas is over and it was dying and it was like left out front. I was like, oh my god, the poor tree. <laughs> there you go. There you go, Leah, Sarah. <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too, you guys. guys too. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.